listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey and welcome, it's Aaron, shortly joined by my brother Joshua. With the trade deadline in the rear view and the All-Star game fast approaching, we have plenty to discuss and the incomparable Howard Beck is here to help us accomplish that. Howard, a senior NBA writer for Bleacher Report, has had many stops along the way, including most prominently the LA Daily News and the New York Times. He's also currently the host of the Full 48 podcast and a contributor to NBA TV and NBA radio. The prolific writer will be in Charlotte for NBA All-Star Weekend, as will Joshua, so we'll touch upon that, but the bulk of the conversation will be spent on the most impactful deadline deals, how those moves figure to alter the Eastern Conference landscape, and the biggest move that didn't get made which would have involved a certain power forward with one fewer eyebrow than most. I really do want to get to the goods, but first, the guest fun fact, our tradition since the podcast's inception. So, in the summer following Howard's senior year of high school, his friend Edgar had a proposition for him. Did he want to go with him and his dad to Southern California? Why not? It was summer break, and Howard had nowhere else to be. Edgar's father was the president of Ferrari of Los Gatos in Santa Clara County, and a very famous celebrity had just ordered a Ferrari Mondale Cabriolet. They were going to deliver it directly to her. So they drove overnight down to Beverly Hills, where they eventually came upon a large gate guarding a mansion. They got buzzed in and drove up the driveway. And there she was. Howard and Edgar got out of the car and stood there in awe, pretty much just staring at Cher while she and Edgar's dad worked on completing the paperwork. Cher had just finished an exercise session with her trainer, so she didn't exactly resemble the actress whose film career was then beginning to skyrocket. Naturally, there was no singing either, but Cher did provide two teenage kids with a celebrity encounter neither will ever forget. With this upcoming interview, Howard is essentially saying to NBA fans craving for more trade deadline analysis, I got you, babe. It's time for us to prove just that. Such a treat to have you on the show, Howard. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, this is going to be fun. It's always a great time to have you on, but right now there's just so much going on. We're going to do our best to hit the main points. Trade deadline just passed. It was a crazy one. So LeBron finally left the Eastern Conference this past offseason. Paul George left the year before. There's been this narrative that all the talent is out West. We had Kelly Dwyer on to preview the Eastern Conference before the season. He was joking about how terrible the Eastern Conference will be. Well, after this crazy trade deadline, some stars and key players have now headed the opposite direction And a lot of people are arguing that possibly four of the league's top five teams now play in the Eastern Conference. Where do you stand on the current balance in power there? It's a fair discussion, which, I mean, the mere fact that we can have a discussion or a debate is a massive improvement uh, after years of the East being a joke and there being usually one good team, whichever one LeBron was on, and then, you know, a couple of okay teams, but the the drop-off was so bad. And then the West, of course, would just be this utter dogfight, you know, three, four, five, six teams sometimes that were really legit. Um, I don't know if we can absolutely say that the top, that four of the top five are in the East. I think that's probably giving... Uh, not enough credit to the Denver Nuggets or Oklahoma. Those are both mm-hmm. really, really good teams. And, you know, the Rockets, while they started the season terribly, have been, you know, pretty good uh, for, for the last, you know, six weeks or whatever since Harden started his his scoring streak. And, you know, I don't know where to slot Portland in there or where to slot Utah, which, like Houston, started off so terribly that it's dragged down their their overall numbers, whether it's, you know, point differential, whether it's just their straight win-loss percentage, but the Rockets and Jazz, I think, are both better than what their standings, their their win-loss would suggest at the moment. 
All that said, I mean, look, Milwaukee, especially as a one-star team, pretty you know damn good star, but as a, as a team built around one guy, is is a really highly uh, efficient and and dominant team. And you know the Raptors adding Marcus All to a team that had you know Kawhi and, and Kyle Lowry, the Sixers adding Tobias Harris to a group that already had three stars. Uh, the Celtics were already stacked. Like if if you want to make the case that those teams are ahead of some of the teams in the West, I think it's possible. Um, there's certainly uh, you know a sufficient star power there, and the results have been pretty good. But it's also hard to compare East and West just because again the records are based on a skewed schedule where the bottom of the East is still far worse than the bottom of the West. And so there is a, a you know an argument to be made that the, the teams in the East their records are padded a little bit by feasting on the Hawks and Bulls and Cavs and Knicks and Magic. Yeah. So anyway. If all we have is a debate about the top four in the East versus the top four or five in the West, uh, and it's at least a legit debate, we, we've made a, a big improvement, at least in terms of uh, conference parity. Yeah, I don't even know if this debate really matters. It's more of like a conversation piece, but we're a podcast, so we do that. Um, and, and you have the Warriors in the West. They've won 14 of their last 15. They have DeMarcus Cousins now. I don't know if any of this even matters, but... Just a lot of excitement spurred by the trade deadline. You tweeted this out, and uh, these stats come from the NBA League office. There were 19 teams involved in trades this deadline. That was tied with last season for most on the deadline day in the last 30 years. 34 players changed teams. That's second most on trade deadline day over the last 30 years. And... 14 trades were completed. That's most on deadline day in the last 30 years. So are you getting sleep? Are, are you having fun? What's going on? <laughs> well, and, and by the way, those stats are just about deadline day. So it did not include all the moves that had been made in, ta- in uh, the prior days and, and week starting with the Porzingis trade um, in anticipation of the trade deadline. And so when you add all those in, I think it's more like 75% of the league made a a deal, at least one deal of some sort. Um, So that's crazy. Yeah. This, this was a really hyperactive uh, trade season. Um, You know, the, the way my job description is, is uh, I, I don't know that I've actually seen my job description on paper, but if you were to put it on paper, I'm not chasing the news. It's not uh, what I do these days. I'm more less of like Woj stuff and more like column. Yeah. There's, right? I mean, there are, there are people right? at the national level who, who are primarily doing transactions and breaking and chasing the news. There are people locally who, if it's your team, you have no choice but to. And I was on that uh, hamster wheel for 16 years, you know, covering the Lakers and Knicks. I'm, gratefully off that hamster wheel and have been for the last five and a half years that have been a bleacher report. So I'm doing more just analysis, you know, deeply reported long form features and you know, the podcast, everything else. So to an extent I get to enjoy it the way a fan does, which is kind of like, you know, I don't want to say kick back and, and just watch it all unfold, but it is a, more a matter of, I need to be on top of it all. I need to be plugged in. I need to touch base with people around the league to get some insight into the deals, how they were made, why, how other teams are perceiving the deals. Um, I need to, to be tapped into all that, but I'm not staying up till four in the morning for Tobias Harris, in yeah. other words. I get what you're saying. It's not such a crazy frenetic pace where you have to be so locked in every second what's happening, but at the same time, you're still plugged in with all these sources and you're following trends and, and stories and, and I'm taking longer to thoroughly report on features and stuff like that. It's just not, it's not so crazy minute to minute, right? Yeah. There's different ways of covering the league. And especially now we are all kind of like hyper specialized in this, uh, Mm -hmm. in this moment, you know, where everybody, you know, they're, like I say, people who do pretty much just breaking the news. That's all they do. And they're, you know, they're folks like me who are primarily doing features and, and, and other stuff, but like my job, it's, it's, it's kind of all over the map. Cause there are days where I have to play pundit there and, and podcast host. And there are days where, you know, it's, uh, it's just spending time reporting on, on, you know, a feature that may be taking, you know, weeks to put together. I think it's pretty cool. What you do, you're able to tell a lot of really compelling stories. You mentioned Tobias Harris, you actually had the pleasure of having him on your podcast, The Full 48, right before the season started in October. And I thought it was a really interesting discussion. You talked about a lot of things with him that are now relevant again. He's only 26. 
now he's been traded for the fifth time in his NBA career. As you noted in the interview, it's not like he's a bad character guy or like there's some glaring flaw in his game. It, it just happens with some players that they end up being on the move a lot. Who knows? It, it could stabilize for him. He could be on Philadelphia for the next 10 years or whatever. We don't know, but he mentioned to you that you never really get used to getting traded, but for him, it's like he takes an hour to process it, then he's on to the next. And he also mentioned that every trade that's involved him in his NBA careers turned out to be a blessing and an opportunity to expand his game. But um, about that trade, I think it makes Philadelphia so talented. As you alluded to, they have so many stars in their starting lineup. Maybe now they have an issue of depth, but if they stagger well, they figure out their rotations. I think that masks their depth issues really well, especially when rotations are shorter in the postseason. How do you kind of think about the power dynamic out East with these four or five teams? Maybe Pacers take a step back with Oladipo's injury, even though they're well coached and they're hanging tough. But all these teams at the top of the East just keep getting stronger. Yeah, and it's interesting because the three teams that made the additions in the East, you know, the Sixers, Raptors, Bucks, they're all very different kinds of additions. And, you know, they all strengthen themselves. I think there's nothing to dislike about any of those acquisitions. But it's funny that the one that was the flashiest in some ways, the big, the most marquee addition would be Tobias Harris. And that's not to, you know, no disrespect to Marcus Gasol, who's a, a great player and multiple-time All-Star and everything else. But, you know, he's in his twilight um, or getting toward there. And so Tobias Harris, who, as a guy who's in his prime, who was a borderline All-Star, that's, you know, on its face, the flashiest acquisition of those contenders in the East. But it's also the one that I think came with the most caveats and potential concerns because you already had a team with three stars, Embiid, Simmons, Jimmy Butler, where – there are some tensions, you know, there have been, you know, kind of below the surface tensions that people around the league have been talking about for the last couple of years with Simmons and Embiid that, you know, they're, they're really not that tied together in terms of just personality and relationship that there's some, there's just some underlying tensions there about power dynamics and, and role and all this, um, even though they seem like they should fit together perfectly. And then you throw Jimmy Butler and all the volatility that can come with him on top of that. And we know that within a first couple of weeks of that acquisition, Joel Embiid was already talking about how tough it is for him to adjust to a different role because of Jimmy taking up, you know, more of the offense. And then within not too long after that, you had Jimmy and, uh, you know, talking about how you know, he wanted to have more pick and roll run where he's the ball handler and the whole reported blow up with Brett Brown. So you've already got tensions there. And now you throw Tobias Harris, who's a high usage guy and maybe doesn't have as big of a personality as Butler and Embiid, but certainly like a lot of young players who are really talented and, and have great aspirations, he's got an ego, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a far more, um, you know, uh, I think, uh, modest, uh, I don't know if a modest ego is, is, is contradictory in terms, but like, it's, <laughs> it's not, it, it's not this big blaring swaggering kind of, uh, persona, but, He's certainly got an ego too, and he's he certainly wants to get his shots as well. So, yes, the Sixers, their starting five might be the best starting five in the East now, and maybe the best starting five outside of Golden State, but that's on paper. And the chemistry part of it, I think, has to be at least a little bit of a concern. You know, uh, as we record this, we've only seen you know them together once, and they they had a really nice uh, win against the Nuggets. And everybody got their shots and everybody scored in double figures and and it worked out fine. There's a couple months of them still having to figure out whether that's, you know, how that's going to work from night to night. And, uh, and we'll see how that chemistry is going into the postseason. It's interesting what Elton Brand is doing. um, Just kind of accelerating the championship timeline. They're just, they're just really trying to go fast. That might have a little bit to do, of course, with changes in front office, but it also is just mm-hmm. like this is where they eventually needed to be. This is what the, the process was building toward was that right. you 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 tank for multiple seasons so that you can get as many shots as possible at high level talent in the draft, and then once you've got enough of those guys and you've hit some sort of yeah. threshold, whatever that may be, however you might define it, eventually you were going to turn the corner and say, okay, now it's time to start spending cap room, chasing free agents, chasing trades. Like that moment was always coming, whether it was still Sam Hankey there, whether it was Colangelo, whether it's Elton Brand. Yeah. All that said, 
kudos to Elton Brand, who as a rookie GM who just you know took his jersey off for the last time a couple of years ago, has been incredibly aggressive and, and very bold in making the deals both for Butler and Tobias Harris. I mean, it's 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 really rather impressive work, and it's not just Elton. Obviously, they've got a, a, a very veteran front office around him, which you need with with a guy who's you know a GM for the first time mm-hmm. in his career. But uh, yeah, I, I, I admire the the ambitiousness of that front office. Talking about team building, you wrote a great feature earlier this season on Giannis Antetokounmpo and just the larger context right now where star players are increasingly dictating where they go, sometimes well before their contract expires. And teams around the league don't like that. But then again, it's a brutal business. And we saw what the Clippers did to Blake Griffin months after signing him to a five-year contract. It goes both ways. So Giannis, we still have another year before he's in the same situation. I shouldn't say same situation, but at least contractually that Anthony Davis is right now. And so the Bucks will have to make a decision leading up to the deadline next year or two off seasons from now. But share a little bit with me about what you were trying to do with that article and, and why you think Giannis may be unique with how he approaches things as a star in today's NBA. Yeah. So I wrote that story in December reported, um, I think mostly in also early December. And at that time, the Anthony Davis saga was still in its earlier stages, which was the speculation stage. Is he going to sign a supermax after the season? Uh, is he going to try to force his way out? When will that happen? You know, they're struggling at that time, the Pelicans, and so there's a lot of smoke around that. And as I looked at that and I thought, you know, this is just the latest version of this, right? For the last, you know, eight years or so, ever since LeBron left Cleveland to go to Miami and created this new dynamic, this new uh, standard for superstars in the modern NBA where you don't have to stay. If you, if you think that your team has flatlined, if you don't think you can contend, if you want to, if you're just, or if you're just unhappy with whatever, you can leave. And that wasn't the way the NBA worked for decades and decades. Uh, you know, you usually stayed put. And the idea was to, you know, you stick it out and you, you know, you don't go join up with other stars. That's just, that wasn't considered uh, to be appropriate somehow. So LeBron trampled those barriers, established a whole new understanding. And ever since then, stars have been bouncing around the league at a rate that we've never seen before. So rather than try to hone in on Anthony Davis in that situation. What I thought was let's step back, look at the broader trend and look at it through the view of a different player, which was Giannis. And the reason being that contractually Giannis was on the exact same path, but just one year behind Anthony Davis. In other words, Anthony Davis last fall was less than a year out from the decision of either accepting a supermax or turning it down, which would set into to play a series of events, which would probably lead to him being traded. Giannis this coming fall, is going to be entering the season where it's his final season before he's eligible for the Supermax. So July 1st of 2020, Giannis will be offered the Supermax by the Bucks, And if he accepts it, great. He's there for the duration or for a long time. If he turns it down, it's the exact same thing that we were talking about with Anthony Davis. Well, if he turns it down, it means he doesn't want to be there. Anthony Davis accelerated the whole process by deciding to, to have uh, Rich Paul, his agent, make a trade request, and very publicly so, in the middle of this season. That was the part that I don't think people necessarily anticipated. But when, when I was writing about Giannis, it was really, to an extent, a story about Anthony Davis, but through a different prism and, 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 mm-hmm. and about the trend, but through the prism of Giannis, where the Bucks had a longer runway um, because you know he's simply one year behind in terms of the contract uh, timing. And so it, it allowed me, I think, to be able to talk to John Horst, the Bucks GM, and to Giannis himself and to Mike Budenholzer about what they were building. And that if you're building it right, and the Bucks are, then maybe you, you head off the entire crisis that eventually enveloped the Pelicans. And so, um, you know, trying to report that story and the, the broader trend while focused on Anthony Davis would have been really fraught, right? I'll go down to, to New Orleans. Everybody's walking on eggshells. They're all nervous about the, what may happen. Nobody wants to upset anybody. Nobody wants to talk about the struggles and, and why they're in a position where he might want to leave in the first place. So that would have been a very, I think, unproductive way of trying to talk about the broader trend and, and issue, which is if you have a young superstar in the NBA in this era and you're not doing everything 
that did you that you have to do if you're not doing everything right. You are on the clock at all times, and you are always at risk of losing that guy. Whereas in prior eras of the NBA, guys would just generally stay, and contracts were longer in prior eras too. So we're in an era of short contracts, player empowerment, all of which makes for a very uh, a volatile and risky situation for owners and GMs because they have a very you know tight time frame to get things on the right track or risk losing their guy, and even more so if you are in a small market as New Orleans and Milwaukee are. So those were all the threads that tied it all together, and, and that's why I decided to go and do this story through Giannis as a way of talking about the broader trend and the pressures and how you, you deal with those pressures in terms of trying to build the right team so that the guy doesn't want to leave. Right. That phenomenon is relevant as ever right now. And speaking particularly about the Anthony Davis situation, so obviously he stayed put at the deadline, much to the chagrin of the Lakers. Everyone's talking about the Celtics and the Lakers as the likeliest landing spots for him in the offseason. Is there any dark horse team or teams that you think are likely to land him potentially instead? It's a great question. Um, that's a tough one to answer, only because uh, you know we are months out, and I don't. Yeah. You know, it, it's hard to know how circumstances will change for teams. In other, put it put it this way, you know, we know that LA is the team that he wants to go to, but as, as of this point, they haven't had the goods to get it done in a trade. If they did, the trade probably would have already been made. You have the Celtics, who you know want to chase him, and. As long as Kyrie's going to resign there, because Kyrie and Anthony Davis are are tight, and they they've talked about trying to play together, as, according to people I've talked to, those guys have have been trading notes on this for some time. Um, so if Kyrie resigns and and things go you know the way that, that uh, the Celtics would like, then they flip a bunch of their assets for Anthony Davis. So there's you know those two are at the lead for for certain reasons, and and the Celtics have as of right now we view most people around the league would view as the best. Uh, potential package to put together where the dark horses come in is we don't know who's going to have the draft rights to Zion Williamson yet. And, you know, Zion Williamson, it's not a, a, a unanimous feeling about him, by the way, like there are people around the league who will tell you, they think he's absolutely going to be a star and a a high level star and others who will say, you know what, he might be really good, but he might also just be just a player, just, just you know, just a great athlete who you know can impact a team, but not necessarily a perennial star. But if you think he's a star, if you're the Pelicans and you think he's a guy you can build around, you want to know who that team is. And so, waiting until the off season was was smart in that regard too. Well, the lottery will be in May. We'll see who has the draft rights to Zion Williamson. Maybe that team becomes a trade partner. The other possibility is a team like Denver, which has phenomenal talent and depth but doesn't have that one transcendent guy. And that's, you know, Jokic is unique and amazing uh, for what he is. And Jamal Murray's, you know, uh, you know, rising fast. But certainly a team like Denver would love to have Anthony Davis, I'm sure. They're not going to make that trade now because you've got a young, deep team that is still in its infancy, that has not even been in the playoffs yet, that is just building towards something. Now, if you go in the, let's say you get to the postseason, and you're going in as the two seed and you get knocked out by the Lakers in the first round, for instance, just as a hypothetical. Do you then say, you know what? We want to accelerate this. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to just kick back and, and wait for Jamal Murray and Jokic and the rest of these guys to take the next step. We think we need to make a deal now and we've got the pieces because we've got so many different players we could put into a deal. You know, I'm not suggesting the Nuggets should do that or will do that, but that's an example of a team that has the kind of depth in their roster and is at a stage where you could see that trade-off making sense, that kind of move making sense. Now, again, a bunch of other things come into play. Will Anthony Davis signal that he will never resign there? And would that scare them off? I mean, that's the same thing that the Celtics are going to have to deal with, right? Like All signals are that he only wants to play for the Lakers. Well, any right. team that trades for him other than the Lakers is going to have to decide whether that's a worthy risk or not. Yeah, so the Lakers offered a, a great deal for Anthony Davis from my perspective. It either wasn't enough or the Pelicans were trying to increase their leverage by waiting and having the Celtics and Lakers and other teams bid against one another. But from the Lakers' perspective, I'm curious how you think this is being approached by fans and the team specifically. So they missed out on Anthony Davis. It's hugely disappointing especially to a fan base, as you well know, 
from being their beat reporter once upon a time that has such high expectations. A lot of times it's ridiculously unfair how high the expectations are. And it's kind of a transitional year in LeBron James's first season with the Lakers. Are the fans going to let up at all? And is it kind of like if you don't get to the Western Conference Finals against the Warriors or have a decent playoff showing, people are going to be pissed? <laughs> well, I mean, look, the, the expectations in L.A., both within the organization and from the fan base, are always just ridiculously high. And it's always championship or bust. You know, there's no, they don't hang division banners at Staples Center. They don't, uh, they don't celebrate anything other than championships. They don't expect anything other than championships. And even, you know, everybody else might look at it and say, hey, look, you got LeBron, you're relevant again after, you know, uh, several years there of, of, of kind of, you know, wandering in the wilderness and being in the lottery every year. And LeBron restores their, their mystique. Um, and Hey, just getting to the, you know, you don't have a second star. So, Hey, just getting to the playoffs in year one with LeBron should be a a great first step. But in LA, that's, that, that's never going to be enough. You know, the rest of us can say that practically speaking, that, that that it's a very solid first step and that now you just need to add a second star. And in year two, you know, that's when you start to contend, but that's never going to be the case for, for Laker fans. Um, and and that creates pressures. You know that's why you know you you hear you know pressures about you know whether Luke Walton's you know job is secure. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, including you know murmurings from LeBron's camp. But I, I think the reasonable and, and reasonable never comes into this. But re- the reasonable um, expectation should be if you don't have a second star, if you have this mishmash of a roster that the Lakers have, then just making the playoffs is the reasonable year one expectation. And because you have LeBron in a best of seven series, who knows, you know, you might, you might knock somebody out a higher seed in the first round. And, you know, I'm not suggesting they're going to beat the Lakers if it's a one eight, but if they can get to seven or six somehow, and, you know, could they beat a, a Nuggets team that's in the postseason for the first time and has no experience at that level and is dealing with LeBron? Yeah, that's, that's not completely out of the question. Um, that would, that would be, you know, a, a, a tremendous first year with LeBron considering they have, you know, no second star to, to pair with him yet. Would that be enough for the fans? Probably still not. <laughs> but, but I think that would be a pretty great outcome for year one, given that they don't have anybody else uh, as his running mate. So switching gears, you're known as a reporter who doesn't stick to sports, and we don't either. So I want to talk about Charlotte and the bathroom bill. In 2016, the bill was passed. A few months after that, Adam Silver announced that the NBA wouldn't hold the event there the following year. Now, in 2019, it's back. Um, I've done a lot of reporting, talking to, to leaders in the LGBT community who have told me that nothing has really changed. What do you think about the NBA having the weekend there? Yeah, it's a tough issue because, as the league pointed out at the time, even when they, even when they pulled the All-Star game out of there, and certainly when they made the decision to bring the All-Star game back a couple of years later, they point out, and I think rightly, that, listen, Charlotte is one city within North Carolina, and Charlotte itself had progressive laws on the books that were being superseded by the state, but that wasn't Charlotte's doing. So, one, there's the issue of are you punishing the city of Charlotte unfairly when that city, I, I think by and large, if, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly, has has been, I think, on the right side of this issue. The other piece of it is that, well, if we're saying we're going to make a principled stand by not doing business in North Carolina and not having the All-Star game there and not restoring it, after, you know, as you point out, they canceled it, they, they, they pulled out for that year, and now here we are a couple of years down the road and it's, it's happening after all. Um, was the law changed sufficiently to justify that? As you've pointed out, a lot of people in, in the LGBT community would say no. Uh, I would say that I, I can't disagree with that. But the league's stance, and I understand it, is, well, we do still have a team there. We do still do business there on any number of levels, including the fact that the Charlotte Hornets exist. And, you know, so you're you're already there. Now, that doesn't mean you have to award the extra bonus to a local economy or, or you know, I guess you could say by extension, the state's economy, if, if that's appropriate, by bringing the All-Star Weekend there. So, look, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sympathetic to anybody who says that they, that they shouldn't have reversed themselves. And I do think it's a reversal of sorts by bringing the All-Star Weekend there anyway. 
Um, but I also do understand that, listen, you know, there, there would be a built-in hypocrisy if you're already doing business there and you already have a team there, unless you're going to pull the Charlotte Hornets out of there. And then that extends to a bunch of other states too, where there are other laws on the books in, in other states where the NBA has teams that also might run afoul of the league's, I, I think, generally progressive you know, view of things. So it, it gets complicated really quickly. Uh, I like what my uh, sometimes broadcast partner on NBA radio, Noah Kozlov, had suggested when we discussed this a couple of years ago when we were still co-hosting a show, um, which was that you hold the weekend anyway, but you use it as as a uh, a opportunity to also celebrate diversity, celebrate gay rights, incorporate a, a lot of of those kinds of elements into the celebration uh, that is All Star Weekend, and and basically use it as one a a, a positive um, force in this area, but also as kind of a big middle finger at anybody at the state level who were passing these laws in the first place, where you could you know uh, turn it into a I don't want to say turn it into, into Pride Week, but incorporate some elements of of a, of a Pride Week type celebration within the All Star Weekend uh, could have been a, a really in, in, interesting uh, way of going about this, an interesting opportunity. I, I to my knowledge, nothing like that is is happening next weekend in Charlotte, but. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if anything like that does arise, or if anybody just locally, as a you know, uses the opportunity to to make the point. That's a great point. And um, Stephanie Dolson from the Chicago Sky, who's openly gay, she's going to be in the celebrity game. And I know that this issue is very close to her heart, so I'm sure she's going to at least be talking about it. But um, interesting to note, moving the event in 2017 cost the city of Charlotte about $100 million, and the NBA played a huge role along with the NCAA and other large corporations in getting the legislature to even consider making a change in the first place and then making that ha- the repeal happen with their dollars, basically, in their business. So however unsatisfactory the repeal was to a lot of people and continues to be, the NBA is still in the tradition of Adam Silver's commissioning really made a difference. There's no question, and no one should have any question about where, where Adam Silver stands on these issues. And I think Adam was the first uh, commissioner in any sport in, in North America to uh, take part in, in, in the pride parades. And, and he's, you know, been a, a champion on these issues. And, and there's no, there's no ambiguity about how the league office views gay rights, um, any elements of, of diversity and, and, and just the, the embrace of people of, of, of all walks of life. That has been the NBA's hallmark for, for many years. And, you know, it's, it has its faults like any other business or any other organization. But I don't think there's any question about Adam Silver's stance on any of this. But he also has 30 owners to answer to. It is a business. And you still have to sometimes find these middle paths that not everybody is, is, is going to agree with. And that's understandable. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of really interesting storylines going into All-Star Weekend. Which event would you say you're most excited about and why? (laughs) I think this is going to be my 17th All-Star Weekend. So there's there's no, you know, the the novelty, I would have to say, wore off a long time ago. Um, You know, it's not something that you you want to say out loud too often because you know I, I know fans still get really jacked up for it and understandably so and especially younger fans uh you know listen the dunk contest in its best years is spectacular and i'm really glad that i was there for zach levine versus aaron gordon a few years back because that one was one of the greatest of all time and i, I almost feel like the event should have been retired on the spot because it's it's kind of uh, fallen off again since then. But every time we write it off, somebody comes up with something incredibly inventive that uh, injects new life into the whole contest. So maybe we'll see that again this year. Um, the three-point shootout's always fun. It's the essence of the game is shooting, and they got a, a really nice field. Uh, I go mostly just for you know networking purposes. See people, you know, if I've got stories that I'm working on, there are people I can talk to there, you know, because the entire league is is in one place. So it's just it's just a, a fun weekend with uh, you know everybody from around the league and I'm friends with a lot of people on the NBA beat in terms of all the other writers and there's only a couple times a year that we're all in the same place at the same time so just socially it's a lot of fun but 
it, it's it's never any particular one event that I'm that I'm you know particularly looking forward to. It's it's just more the weekend as a whole. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the three point contest actually with with Steph and and Seth Curry going head to head and all those other great three point shooters. I'll see you in Charlotte. I'm really excited to be there. Yeah, no, you'll you'll enjoy it. I mean, it is it's it's utter chaos at times, um, but it's uh, it's a happy chaos. I was just thinking when you were saying that, not to make you feel old, but you've been covering All Star games almost longer than Jaron Jackson and some of these other guys like Trey Young have been alive. <laughs> sorry yeah, about that. Th- I'm sorry. Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Um, but you know what? I, I run into that a lot. I, I mean, listen, I've been covering the league long enough to, I covered Glenn Rice and then Glenn Rice Jr. at some point came along, didn't quite, you know, <laughs> had a harder time sticking, but there's Gary Payton. I covered Gary, the end of Gary Payton's career when he was uh, with the Lakers and Gary Payton Jr. You know, has, has since come and gone with the league. I don't think he's playing anywhere right now, but yeah, the, I, I get those reminders now and then. And then um, a lot of people are having a similar conversation about the Hawks with Vince Carter being teammates with Trey Young. It's an interesting dynamic. Oh, no question. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. Hey, this is Max Rappaport from the Step Over Podcast, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. We're going to try to wind this down. So much we want to discuss. Mike Budenholzer, head coach for the Bucks in his first season in Milwaukee, just doing a tremendous job. They did a really good job on the personnel side, helping bring his vision of three-point shooters to surround Giannis. And they're really executing. They're currently ranked fourth in offensive rating, first in defensive rating. And then the story out in Denver with what Mike Malone is doing. He's been known as a defensive-minded coach, but finally... Now his defense has been performing well. They've slipped in recent months to now they're middle of the pack on the defensive end. But that's a huge improvement from where they've been in recent years, which is near the bottom of the league. And that was a huge concern going in. Are they going to defend? And and I mean, they've done all this with so many injuries. Will Barton, Gary Harris Jr., um, Paul Millsap, IT hasn't even played any games yet this season. But that's a long way of me asking you, are those two of the leaders, would you say, presently in the coach of the year race? Yeah, most years, coach of the year is, is like six or seven deep because you know, they're the, the coaches who are presiding over teams that are contenders and that made big leaps into contention. So that's the Mike Buddenholzer category. Then there's the coaches who, you know, and similar with the Denver Nuggets and Mike Malone, where they've taken a big leap and the talent is there, but it's also about what, you know, how that talent has been massaged into something better and, and has made some massive improvement. The other category is the underachiever category. And, and coach of the year has often gone to the team that just nobody saw coming. And often that's the coach who, who massaged more out of less talent. So, which is my long-winded way of saying that Kenny Atkinson of the Nets absolutely needs to be in the discussion and needs to be on a lot of ballots this spring. And the Nets right now are sixth in the East. If they hang on, and I think they will, and make the playoffs with a team that most people had pegged as you know 30 to 35 wins, no lottery picks of their own for the last five years, and you know, D'Angelo Russell makes the All-Star game now as, as an injury replacement for Oladipo, but no All-Stars a lot of lower picks, cast-offs from other teams. And you can see the absolute impact of, of Kenny Atkinson and his staff's coaching because you know Spencer Dinwiddie was you know cast aside by the Pistons and Bulls, comes to the Nets, and he was playing at a borderline all-star level. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, cast aside by the Lakers, just they didn't even want anything to do with him by the time they traded him. He now makes the all-star team. Joe Harris, another cast-off from a couple of years back, turns into a really good starter and rotation player for the Nets. And then the young guys that they've drafted, Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, everybody improves there. And that's the essence of coaching is is getting the most out of guys. And so I think the Nets, the way that they're playing, the fact they're going to probably make the playoffs when I, I don't know that, I don't know that there was a single odds maker or pundit or publication anywhere in October that had the Nets anywhere close to the playoffs, much less potentially the sixth seed in the East. So Kenny Atkinson should be in there. Mike Budenholzer absolutely should be in there. As you mentioned, Mike Malone should be in that ca- in that discussion. I think Nate McMillan should be in that discussion, mm-hmm. uh, especially what the Pacers have been doing even after losing Oladipo for the season. 
Yeah. And I'm probably overlooking somebody. You know, I think Brett Brown doesn't get enough credit for just having to deal with all of the egos and young talent that the uh, Sixers have there. I thought he got a, a little overlooked last year even, but he deserves to uh, to get a little mention as well. During your response, I was just thinking about other ones we didn't name. Nate McMillan, you did name him near the end. He was one that came to mind, but also Nick Nurse. I think he's one that maybe should be considered, even though they have a deep squad there in Toronto, his first year taking over at the helm there with the Raptors. Dave Yeager, maybe, in Sacramento. Oh, for sure, Dave Yeager. Maybe even Doc Rivers a little bit, but I mean, um, we'll see. A lot of these guys are doing just such impressive jobs. Yeah, for me, it's Bud and Malone right now at the top, but a lot of good ones to consider. Just a little bit more about the Denver Nuggets' chances in the playoffs. You noted earlier they have a long playoff drought. I believe it's five seasons now, but it's been longer since they've gotten past the first round. 2009 was the last time. They have a very young squad, a lot of promising guys, but not that much playoff experience, really. It's interesting because they've done so well despite all of the injuries. Then again, I think a case could be made that Isaiah Thomas could potentially disrupt their chemistry if they don't figure out how to utilize him properly. They have a really good thing going there. No disrespect to to Isaiah Thomas. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on what their chances are in the playoffs. Obviously, the Warriors are going to be the front runner going in. They've earned that designation. And there are a lot of other teams that are very good and deep in the Western Conference. But how do you approach Denver's chances? They're a curiosity because I think the usual progression is, you know, you're a lottery team, you're a lottery team again, you're a lottery team again, and then eventually you, you, you make your breakthrough as, you know, a sixth, seventh, eighth seed. You don't usually go from out of the playoffs to potentially the number two spot in a very tough Western conference. And so I think they're going to be kind of hard to gauge because they're so untested. You know, again, the, the conventional thing is, you break through, you make the playoffs, you lose in the first round as a seventh seed that won, you know, 43 games or something. That's not going to be the case for them. Um, so they're going to have the advantage of their breakthrough season being one where they actually have home court in the first round. But at the same time, they, they just, they're completely untested. Like there's just, I'm looking down the roster just to make sure here, but I don't, I don't think there's a single, like Paul Millsap is the only rotation player with extensive playoff experience. Maybe, maybe Trey Lyles. Plumley in Portland, possibly. I mean, there's just, there's not a lot Isaiah of... Isaiah Thomas, but he hasn't played and, all year. Yeah, and we don't know, I, I don't know when Isaiah is going to play or how much of a role he'll play. And to yeah. your point, yes, there, there's a there's a potential ripple effect on the rotation there too, especially because they've had such, you know, great play from guys like, you know, Beasley and Morris and, you, you know, how are you going to fit him in? So I, I think it's a great unknown. I mean, they're, they're a legitimately very, very good team. Are they a great team? You know, are, are Jokic and, and Murray as the as the, the kind of the leaders of that squad, how are they going to hold up under the, the brighter lights of the playoffs? If the playoffs started today, the Nuggets would be facing the Spurs in the first round. I, are, is anybody, you know, going to rule out the possibility of a DeMar DeRozan, LaMarcus Aldridge, Greg Popovich upset of the Nuggets in, in round one? I, I mean, I wouldn't. I, that's that's. A I don't think so. I think the Nuggets would be the favorite, but I, I don't think anyone would, would rule out that possibility yet. Um, one thing I was thinking, too, just now is it may be totally different, but the Atlanta Hawks from 2014-15 a little bit remind me of the Nuggets, how they kind of came out of nowhere. They went on to win 60 games that season after yeah. uh, the previous three seasons not even emerging out of the first round. And then they ended up getting to the conference finals where they were swept by the Cavaliers, but they won a couple rounds. But uh, they, they just didn't have enough. And I mean, LeBron emerges from the East every year for a decade. So Yeah. And that Hawks team was looked at as as a kind of a paper tiger even during the season. Like people weren't yeah. completely sold on them, and they made it, they did make it to the conference finals in addition to that sixty wins. But you know, again, it's the East, and the East wasn't that great. Um, the West is is really tough to the point where that potential matchup against the Spurs, we you actually have to like give it some thought. And look, it, it could be, they could be facing the jazz in the first round. If the nuggets sank to three or if the, if the jazz, if the nuggets stay put in the jazz sank to seven, yeah, like, the West that's a is... potential. Yeah. There, there, there's no, 
the Lakers may yet break back into the playoff field there, and they could be the first round. You know, again, are you going to bet against LeBron in the first round? So I, like, I'm not trying to 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 already bury the Nuggets by any right. stretch. Uh, I I I think that by all rights they should win at least a round. But I do think that they're in a unique situation for a lot of reasons. What we're trying to do here is be realistic. We're not we're not trying to um, discourage the Nuggets. Like my first question about our four of the top five teams in the NBA in the East. That's that's not to downgrade the uh, amazing season the Nuggets have had. And yeah, like you mentioned, they they have a decent shot of winning a couple rounds. They're really strong. They're they're young. They're good. The future is definitely bright in Denver, led by that triple double machine there playing center and Jokic. So it's going to be interesting to see. The last question that I wanted to ask you. I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. And I'm sorry it took us so long to get to this, but the Knicks made that huge trade, dealing their franchise cornerstone away in Kristaps Porzingis. Unless they know something that we don't know about their chances of landing Durant and or another superstar, as you argue in a recent column, it's a huge gamble. Just help contextualize that for us if you can. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of layers to it. And, you know, it, it's been a, a week and plus since the trade. And I, you know, I've, I've got a little bit more information than I had at the time that I, I wrote it on the day of the trade. But in general, my impression of it hasn't changed. And the, the broad strokes are the Knicks did something very unusual. They traded a 23-year-old all-star, granted one with an ACL uh, recovery that is still ongoing. But they traded a 23-year-old all-star in order to incentivize their trade partner, the Mavericks, to take on their bad contracts, which was Tim Hardaway Jr. and Courtney Lee, because the Knicks wanted to clear cap room, because they want to have the opportunity to chase Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and everybody else this summer. And that's a gamble. And that's, I think, the primary framework of the deal is get rid of bad contracts, use Porzingis to do it, use that cap room to chase these superstars that you think might be inclined to come to New York. There's another layer to it, of course, which is they got more to the the deal than just cap relief. They also did get two first round picks from Dallas that I believe are likely to be mid to low first round picks. So I don't think these are, are high value first round picks. Now you can get talent anywhere in the draft but look there's a reason that teams value lottery picks and top five picks over you know the 15th to 25th which is where the dallas picks are probably going to be assuming that porzingis gets back to good health and the mavericks you know have a a good team around him and and luka Doncic. so is that enough and then dennis smith jr dennis smith jr who a lot of teams around the league are, are in scouts and executives are pretty down on so is Dennis Smith Jr. and a couple of, of low firsts enough for a 23-year-old all-star? Or is the cap room enough? Is the combination of all of that, do, does that justify giving up a guy who you, th- you you would advertise and invested in as the face of your franchise? And so that's, you know, that's, that's the question that the Knicks had to face. And that's the, the skepticism and the, and the criticism that comes with it. And that's what a lot of Knicks fans have been grappling with because – you know, and I live in New York, so I'm surrounded by them. But you know, some of them are are, are pretty excited about the idea of just using cap room and, and chasing the stars. A lot of them know that they've tried that before and, and failed. And in the meantime, they had to sacrifice a guy who you know a lot of them were very excited about not so long ago before he went down with that knee injury. So it, it's a complicated trade because of all of that. And it's and the you know, we may not know whether it was worth it or not until we see what happens this summer. If they get a couple of stars, they get two max guys. I guess you could say it was it was worth the trade off. If they don't get two max guys and they overspend on some second tier guys and become just mediocre, then you're going to you know doubt that that trade for a long time. We also may not know what the you know, the best way to evaluate it is until not only they use the cap room, but we see what those picks become. So, in fairness. The long view is you don't know how the trade worked out for the Knicks for a few years. But I think that just in the moment, given how rarely the, the Knicks have had elite talent and, and, and somebody who was homegrown and worth building around being excited about to have sacrificed him uh, just a few years in, I, I think is um, it's, a, it's a dicey kind of transaction. It seemed peculiar and it caught a lot of people off guard, especially as you convincingly argued Steve Mills was quoted a couple months earlier as saying patience is a virtue, basically, and that you don't 
rush and, and uh, try to fast track something when you have a vision and that that's not the right way to approach things and that usually backfires and then that's kind of what he did right after. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, you know, I mean, you know, the Knicks, part of the problem here is that they have sent mixed signals about saying we're going to take the long view, we're going to build this slowly, methodically, and, you know, Porzingis is the cornerstone that you're supposed to be building around. You know, and then the other element, too, I should mention, of course, is that it, by the time that they traded him, Porzingis had, and, and his brother, who is his representative as well, had said, listen, we, we don't want to be here anymore. Um, they were pretty down on the franchise, and so... You're not obligated to trade a guy. He was a restricted free agent, and, and you you absolutely could have kept him this summer. Um, and I think anything about him taking the qualifying offer and signing for one year and leaving was was a bluff. But they could have ridden that out. They could have tried to work to to build rebuild that relationship. Franchises have done it before. Guys have made trade demands before that have been ignored by teams, and they've been fine. But that was the other element that they had to deal with. And they decided it was better just to, you know, cut their losses in a sense and, and offload them, get what they could and, and start over with somebody else. I know I said last question, but just a, a brief one. Where do you think Ennis Cantor ends up? Wow. No idea. Honestly, uh, I've heard no specific rumblings on that one. There are, you know, any number of teams that I think could use him. I mean, he's, you know, he's got a de- his defensive deficiencies, but he's a phenomenal offensive rebounder and he's a very good scorer. And, you know, a strong team can find a way to maximize his strengths and minimize his weaknesses. That's what the great teams and uh, mm-hmm. do. So whether that's maybe the Raptors, um, although they've got a, a bit of blood of big men anyway, maybe the Pacers, the, the Celtics, I think, have been linked to him. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe he goes back to Oklahoma, you know, <laughs> I, they, they could use another another big in the rotation. But I, I'm just, you know, I'm just, just glancing over standings and, and thinking like, all right, who's, who needs a little bit more pop for the playoffs? But uh, yeah. I think the only place I would rule out is Utah. His his departure there was uh, a little too bitter for that, that reunion to happen. That was a fun interview that you did with him in January. He was so open and honest. I thought it was hilarious how he said the two things I get criticized the most for Turkish stuff and my defense. <laughs> yeah. And I asked him directly, I said, if you, uh, if, if it's a challenge to, to figure out you know, where you're landing next this summer, which is when I figured he'd hit free agency, not now, although he'll, he will obviously hit free agency again. I said, uh, what's, I, I think I actually said, what's going to be the bigger issue, your outspokenness or your defense. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, he's got a, he's got a great sense of humor. He was really easy going about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, we really appreciate your time. You're one of the nicest, smartest guys covering the NBA. And uh, we'd love to have you on again sometime. No, nah, it's it's my pleasure, and uh, always a pleasure. Besides, to help out a fellow Aggie, so uh, we didn't we didn't even get to like just you know wax poetic about UC Davis. For, I know we, we have so much material end. to cover, and I believe yeah. I apologize if I'm leaving someone out. I believe you're the third Aggie guest that we've had following James awesome. Ham and Darius Soriano. Oh, that's that's phenomenal. Well, I'm in great company then. So uh, <laughs> indeed, go Ags, Aggie pride, all the hashtags, <laughs> and uh, and thanks for having me. It's been fun. My pleasure. Thank you.